listening to Genre Stop, the podcast where we read and review genre fiction. You're here with Bree, a lover of all things fantastical, and me, Scott, a skeptic of all things speculative. This week we read The Goblin Emperor by Catherine Addison. Bree, why don't you uh, give us a little introduction to the work and then we could head off. All right, The Goblin Emperor is the 2014 fantasy novel by Catherine Addison, the pen name of writer Sarah Monette. So I don't know why she used a pen name because she's a fantasy writer. I know nothing about either of them. Oh, okay. Yeah, she's a mystery. The book follows Maya, the... Should we figure out why she used a pen name? (laughs) Do you remember? We could email her. (laughs) Do you think she's running from something? I mean, I feel like if I Googled... Why did Sarah Monette use a pen name? She would have given some answer. It's one of those things where right when you type in W, it starts saying, why did (laughs) Sarah Monette use a pen name? I think everyone's trying to figure this out. She, Sarah Monette, did something. Whoa. And she doesn't want people to figure it out. It was hard. I think she might have done it because Sarah's last book was called White Power. (laughs) So she's like, I need a fresh start. Oh, then she wrote The Goblin Emperor where there's a lot of white power. Is there? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe I don't know. So get to one of my questions. Right, we're going to get into that in a second. I can First, get into it now. I don't know what a goblin is. <laughs> <laughs> the whole time, I don't understand what a goblin is. These are questions maybe for All right, these are after. Yeah, we need to let people know what's going on. Okay, what's so, a goblin? The book follows Maya, the fourth and least favorite son of the elvish emperor, Verenichibel. Yeah? Ver- Verenichibel. Verenich- oh, is he Italian? I don't know. Verenichibo. Okay. Verenichibo. Right. Regardless, after the assassination of Verenichibo and his three eldest sons, Maya must travel to the unthylenized court to claim... <laughs> I think I got pretty good at saying that. All right, one. say it. Unthylenize. <laughs> it's not Italy. <laughs> what yeah. are you talking about? The, I'm sure you pronounce the A, if, or the E on the end of the word. No, nothing about elves in the book reads Italian. If anything, they're like a Norwegian. Okay, Norwegian meaning the language is kind of Germanic. She's obviously using some knowledge of German to do this. Okay, then if we want to say with more of a German thing, wouldn't we say like... Heil Hitler! Untelenaise. Untelenaise. Sehr gut. That sounds good, doesn't it? Okay. Anyway, the that word court, to claim his birthright as emperor of the Elvish kingdom. He's met with resistance, both veiled and overt, due not only to his youth and relative ignorance of court life, but also, more insidiously, due to his biracial identity. See? (laughs) His biracial identity. Pretty good. Okay. See, Maya is half goblin on his mother's side. Oh, the worst side to be goblin on. (laughs) A fact made evident by his dark complexion, orange eyes, and love of meditation. What? While fending off... Oh, we'll get into the goblin religious practices in a little bit. okay. You're already not looking at it right. (laughs) I know. While fending off assassination attempts and learning the intricacies of elvish politics, Maya struggles to come to terms with his abiding loneliness the psychological scars from the light abuse he endured during childhood, (laughs) and the mysterious specter of his predecessor's demise. Meanwhile, he kills everyone he meets with (laughs) kindness. (laughs) 
Um, as icing on the cake, Maya spearheads the women's rights movement <laughs> and, make, and makes plans to build a huge bridge. <laughs> this is true. And he wears a ton of jewelry, too. Oh, God. So much jewelry. So heavy is the head. <laughs> that wears the jewelry. That wears the jewelry. Yes. Okay, so, Scott, <clears throat> uh, I'm yeah. curious. You picked this, and to be honest... Uh, when I picture the books that Scott's going to pick, it's not The Goblin Emperor. Mm. So tell me why you picked it, what were your expectations, and did the book meet them? Okay, I guess why I picked this, I guess I'd read a couple of things when I'm looking around, and I thought after some of our other ones, Name of the Wind, which was, you know, whatever. I wanted a fantasy that seemed more, a little more grounded in its storytelling. And you not mean shorter? Not, <laughs> well, that's obviously one of them, too. I'm, ex I'm really excited for the 150-page fantasy book that's out there somewhere. Maybe <laughs> this one's, what, 450, and it's still... Okay, so that was one of the things. In a way, I was thinking that I wanted, like, to boil down the essence of what I enjoy about fantasy from what I've known so far and what I've read and what I've liked from some of the books and what I've seen. And that is something I thought we could talk about anyway, which is on the front of this, in a kind of strange blurb, but some one that got me is it said something like, if Palace Intrigue is your wine of choice, then you're going to love this vintage or something. But as I was reading it, halfway through, I thought, what is Palace Intrigue? What, how would you define Palace Intrigue? And did this equal that for you? Is this an example of Palace Intrigue? Well, first of all, I would never, I would always call that Court Intrigue, not Palace Intrigue. I'm not talking about the blurb on the book. You're looking at it. I mean, just like between you and me, two people. It's called court intrigue, right? I have no idea. You've heard court intrigue referenced. I hate that I'm getting right to this because I have a lot of other things I want to say about this book. But you touched on that, so I'm going to get right to this. Do I think this had court intrigue? Not really for an adult book, mm. but yes, if this was a young adult book. And I know that this isn't marketed that way. I thought that this was a great YA book. Wow. There's going to be some sleepy 12-year-olds after a, reading this. I was a this. quick 12-year-old. I mean, here's the thing. I, we'll get into this. I really liked this book a lot. Okay. Yeah. But, um, and I, I wasn't really thinking the YA thing until the end. Mm -hmm. But, I'm sorry. When he decided not to kill those two fucking traitors... <laughs> <laughs> when he banished them, I thought, what are you talking about? No, because I like a lot of what the book did about hinting at power and how isolating that is and how sort of terrifying it is. Mm -hmm. And so when finally these two people who had, I think something in me is like a, like a royalist at heart because the fact that they like laid hands on the sacred body of their <laughs> emperor, I actually did like coil back and like, no, they need to, they need to be killed, you know? Okay, so you actually thought he was too, like, common. Like, he demeaned himself a couple times throughout when he went to go, like, to the funeral of the people on board the Wisdom of Chilmaro. No, but the reason, oh, are you kidding? Goosebumps all around. The reason all those scenes worked on me is because I think, like, this God in mortal flesh, mm -hmm. like, this is, like, condescending to do this, and, like, when gods show kindness, it means that much more. So you, you, went, you read against the grain of the book. By, I mean, basically, if this book has a message, which it doesn't in a nice way, I think this is a completely, this is a sober book, mm -hmm. which is very loath mm, to give out. It's pro-bridge building. It's pro-bridge building. But I'm saying it's only in those 
you know, by 350, what I realize what this book's doing or what its message is, mm-hmm. right? Otherwise, it's very paint-by-numbers in a kind of nice way. Connect the pieces. Here is actually the step-by-step way in which this person becomes emperor and deals with things mm-hmm. with not many points of stepping back and saying something grander, placing it in any bigger context, giving the reader any, like, toehold from which to make an assumption about how the author feels about this. I mean, that was my feeling with it at points. I wouldn't say there was a message, but I thought it was the story of an unlikely emperor's rise to power and the tumultuous few months of his reign and how he established himself. Yes. So that's what I kind of mean. It just told a straight story. Yes, it did. It wasn't really concerned with doing much else. Except as far as the demands of character are concerned. Right, right. For instance, what did you make of his relationship to Cetheris? I thought that she was trying to, like, paint a real portrait there. A portrait of a relationship or of a person? I felt like she was trying to talk about the lasting effects of sort of psychological abuse in childhood. Right. And the way that the people who tormented you when they were young, be they actual abusers or just, like, your common bully hold like a really terrifying sway over you as an adult. And I thought she did a good job. I think she did as well, especially because the torment was still kind of slight in many ways, except for like apparently one violent incident. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was drunk. He didn't mean to. Oh, of course. I mean, nothing counts when you're... Nobody calls CPS. They sh- someone should call CPS. <laughs> His dad sent him to a... Funny. He's his guardian. He like tossed him and he fell into something. Right, that's what I'm saying. I like yeah. how slight that was and how much that nonetheless like stayed with him and factored into the way in which he dealt with him. And I like that he never like assumed power and then straight away said, you are now banished and da da da. But that it was kind of a an unease, not wanting to deal with this person, be around them. It made him feel like lowered from his now elevated position. And he didn't like that psychological effect. He just wanted to be done with it. It was subtle, but I liked how... Maya's physical awareness of him, how he didn't want to see him, he didn't want him in the same room. And then, do you remember the one encounter, it was like outside a meeting, when Maya saw him and then as he was walking away, he like felt Cetheris's pre- presence every second till he was gone? Yes. Just that sort of constant holding in your breath, hoping everything's going to be okay. I thought that made me feel genuinely tense in a way that a much grander story wouldn't have made me feel. I think that's a good point. And I think that is something, I think there were times that this in which I felt like she had a better grasp on some sort of, like, intricacies of psychological feeling than any of the books we've read so far. Mm-hmm. I agree. And that came through a couple times. Yeah, I think her restraint benefited this, a good word. the story a lot. Um, for instance, and this is more of an overarching thing, but I bought Maya's maturity through the story, that kind of transformation, because it wasn't too extreme. It did feel gradual to me, and even... In the last 50 pages or so, I remember at one moment there was a line that said he was sitting in, with, with the chor- chores on, the, the council, whatever they were. He Jimmy, was, the chimichangas. He was sitting with them, and it said, like, he was still young and inexperienced and far too ignorant, right. but he could follow their conversation. Right, right. And, and moving from can't follow their conversation to can follow their conversation <laughs> isn't that much. No, but, but it was the book, and it was restraint, and I like that as well. I kind of want to investigate a little bit more. The YA thing, which I think is interesting, because a couple of times I had those thoughts. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if this restraint is just, like, something I admire for the writer to do, because she's not trying to go beyond her story in mm-hmm. that way, or if this is because it's intended for a younger audience. And I ultimately decided that it wasn't intended for a younger audience. 
It just, this is how the story came out. I agree. I don't think it was intended for a younger audience. And I didn't think of the YA thing until the end of the book. But is it, 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 it wasn't been... just the clemency. It was, um, I mean, <laughs> this makes me feel really base, but I, you're, I mean, you're right. In a way, it is just restraint, but we never see like violence or sex. The Revathorion was kind of violent. Oh, I thought, yeah, yeah. and done pretty well. Yeah, that was The gross. ritual suicide in which he had to apply himself five separate cuts. Right, his before cutting his his throat. wrists, his forearms, and his neck. Yeah, right, and that's their um, what's the sepuku? Yeah, it wasn't just that. I guess it was that, regardless of the fact that it it, it wouldn't have gotten an R rating. I think that was sometimes maybe we should talk about the Hollywood rating board a little bit. <laughs> okay, no, I think that what sometimes good YA fiction does is rely on its reader. To uh, like whatever the reader brings into it is what they'll take away from it. So if you have a real sense that the world is a terrible place and mm. what that means and the type of violence that goes into that, then there's a lot of stuff in the book that will take you to those thoughts. But if you're a younger reader and you have a much more limited sense of the terrible realities of existence, then what you'll read in that sentence is a lot more limited. Right. So I think a lot of good YA... Uh, doesn't, you know, it's not for children, but it relies on the knowledge of its reader to take it to dark places. And I felt like that's what a lot of this was doing. Like a lot of the things that I was moved by, then I thought, well, if I was 14 and I read this book, I would still like it. I would take a little bit different things away from it. Right. I mean, you can say that with any book. That's true. Yeah. At the same time, I really like that reading, which is that YA isn't necessarily direct, but an invitation to color this how you will. Yeah, exactly. That's a good way um, I would agree more if, and you're, I mean, I know you've said, you've backed away from using the clemency as the ultimate, like, example mm -hmm. of that. But I think it still is one of yours. And mm -hmm. I would agree with the reading more if that, if the book wasn't just in its general tone, building towards him, showing, being a different type of emperor or king. What is he? He's an emperor. He's an emperor. And I, I think it wasn't in this. It was so, it was just perfect timing. I was, uh, I think I was listening to a podcast the other day. Nice. Whoa. Whoa, what podcast? Whoa. <laughs> and um, uh, a historian was talking oh, about cool. <laughs> some emperor. Oh, and <laughs> And she said, oh, and just so you know, listener, the difference between an emperor and a king is that an emperor is ordained by religious authorities or like is sanctioned by religious authorities or has religious power or something. I don't think so. Okay, well, she said something. It was interesting. I was reading a book called The Goblin Emperor, <laughs> and it just no. made a lot of sense to me at the time. Okay. I had also been on an elliptical trainer for about two minutes <laughs> and was, like, trying to get off, and I felt like that was a sign telling me I need to go finish Goblin Emperor. I mean, I think so as well. And now that we're on that tangent, I saw a license plate the other day that said... So it said, my God is a Jewish carpenter. And <laughs> I thought about that a while. I didn't really get it. So like, what's... <laughs> like, is that... It's, the way it's set up is that like someone would be like, oh, a Jewish carpenter. Or, I mean, what's the, what's the, what's the significance in that statement? It's one of those Christian things that makes like blow your mind. It's like if like a youth pastor comes and does a backflip on stage and the kids are like, whoa, this <laughs> isn't church. I mean, but like, yes, we know that. 
right? Or it's like saying, it's like if a Buddhist had in the back of their car, like, like <laughs> Buddha was from India. It's just, it's just a statement. There's nothing like revelatory about any of that. I mean, there's not, except, I don't know. I could see the person driving that car is like a certain type of Christian whose like family like denies that Jesus was Jewish or something. I but feel it's like most Christians don't care that. Because I've actually seen a lot of interesting bumper stickers lately. For real? <laughs> yeah. Were there any about um, the Goblin Emperor? Shit, no. I really liked one and it said, uh, drive safely, there's no heaven. <laughs> I saw another one that I, I didn't like, but at the same time, I was like, okay, I don't see you every day. And it said, um, think about honking if you like conceptual art. How often do you see that driver? <laughs> what? You said you don't see them every day. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't see this bumper sticker uh -oh. every day. Although I feel like bumper stickers have gone out of fashion in general. We need a new progressive reformer to take over the country, Whoa. a la Mayan Edra Hasevar. <laughs> Well, here's, okay, so here's a, maybe a new segment we can get into mm. called... The World We Live In. The World We Live In. Basically, how would you do in this world? What do you think of... Maybe we could talk about the world. Yeah, would I like to live in this world? Let's take it straight to me. I want to keep it personal. Yes. Um, Describe the world. What does this world look like? This world... Because I, I had a lot of thoughts about that. Based on how I interpret the world and how she dealt with it, a lot hinged on whether I really liked this book or it was, yeah, okay. Okay, um... What's the technology? This is different than a regular fantasy book. This is kind of like a steampunk fantasy, in a way, right? There's airships. Because of the airships. But apart from the airships, I thought I was 100% in 1540 England. Um, and the bomb making. Well, I mean, the bomb making. The yeah. bomb making says also airship land. So those two things. The bridge building seemed like it was using steam or hydraulics. To go in and out, remember the model. You're right. You're right about those things. And I actually loved the bridge model. And I loved the attention she poured over mm -hmm. that. That was actually another like instance of restraint where, and I'll get back to what you said, but where I felt like she's not dumbing down for her reader. Like, oh, this is actually, like when you think of history or the way we remember, uh, you know, like rulers or kings from thousands of years ago, like... Mm -hmm. Like, he built this huge bridge that's going to change, like, the, the whole trade landscape. How I think of a thousand-year-old rulers all the time. Like, <laughs> well, you all probably do, actually. hail Ashurbanipal. <laughs> <laughs> Though at the same time, there was, there was this one line, and I really liked the book, but he just seemed so stupid in this line. Maya? Yeah. Edrahasavar? Edrahasavar. The was, seventh. Mm-hmm. Okay. It was when... I can't read Roman numerals. It was when... Uh, the first time they discussed the bridge building, and mm -hmm. he said, after a while, I started to understand that this, like, what we were really talking about when we talked about this bridge, like, wasn't the rivers or the bridge, it was trade. Oh. And it was like, fucking obviously, Maya, get with it. <laughs> well, you think this is written for, like, 13-year-olds? No, you don't really you understand tell us, thing. telegraph, telescope I don't, stuff. I telegraph. don't think you've ever read a YA book as an adult, so I don't really think you can comment on what it means when I say that it's YA. Wait, back to what, do I want to live in this world? Right. Well, let's, let's flesh out the world. We need to, Well, so we I have... told you what I thought. Of, that's pretty much what I thought about the world. Okay. Okay. And Brie, in this world, how do you do? Are you one of the Edo, what are they named? The... Edokurai? Ed... What was that? <laughs> the Edokurai or the Nonokurai? Oh, wow. <laughs> that's, that's pretty impressive. Um, just like any semi 
courtly intrigue, medieval, renaissance, whatever. I guess it is court intrigue, yeah. not palace intrigue. Yeah. I want to live there if I'm a wealthy noblewoman. Mm. And if not, I don't. Mm. I don't want to be one of his servants who seems like so like pleased with serving him and impressed by their whole station. Right. Well, this is like okay. This is a problem. I went back and forth, and I didn't, I couldn't tell if this was something that was annoying me, or that was going to have explanation later. The motivations, for as well as I think she, she dealt with and fleshed out the main characters. I mean Maya especially. Everyone else's motivations in life and intent and purposes were just a mystery. I mean Sevet, right, mm-hmm. the main his right hand man. Mm-hmm. Um, his secretary. His secretary. We have no... Where, where did he come from? Apparently he was a courier. Courier? Courier. Courier. For his, from his rival. And he says, now you're going to be my secretary. And he jumps into that job with no problem. There's never an issue of loyalty. We don't ever have to question anyone else's loyalty. I mean, is it, is it a product of the solidity of, this, of the kind of dynasty and the, the system? But I didn't, she wasn't trying to go for something like that. But, I mean, just, he seemed so, like, fit into place, loyal, has the answers, that he never seemed like a real person to me. I agree to an extent, except that I feel like we were continually reminded, maybe a little too much, of how dazzled with Maya all good people in the story are because he's kind. So, like, the demonstrations, and I should say, a separate note, but... After Kyothe in Name of the Wind, I was so pleased to see a male protagonist who was self-effacing and gentle and sweet and kind and all of that. Um, But I feel like because he is all those things, all the characters who weren't big political players Mm -hmm. really liked him and obviously felt like this was like a a god being kind. Not a god, but you know what I mean, like an elevated person who is also a god (laughs) i know it was like different on an almost molecular level (laughs) (laughs) like breck is this a computer alien again (laughs) i miss breck i want breck to touch down in this world (laughs) so this world we can keep on it all right this world i like it i only want to live there if i'm rich um got it i still might not prefer to live there more than the world i live in now (laughs) (laughs) if you could live in the castle you would no, if, if I could be, I would be his empress. Ah, but that's not a loving well, position. What do you mean loving? I mean, you're not getting any love. I don't <laughs> well, she doesn't want any love. You think she's gay, right? Who? Uh, his fiance. No. I mean, in a book populated by many gay characters, she is not one of them. His fiance, his sister, and their whole circle, that whole friendship thing was Oh, are we trying gay. to name who was gay? Yeah. We know for certain Savette was gay. We don't know Savette was gay. Just because that man came on to him, he tried to rape him. Who tried to rape him? That uh, Lord Tethamar or whatever. The, after he chased him down with the dogs because oh. he refused his advances. <laughs> Do you, I don't know if you want to get this on tape that all gay men would be okay with any type of... Come no, on. okay. Forceful. You're the one who's saying he's gay only because a man came on to him once. No, no, no. Let me let me get some let me get some textual evidence here. Okay, but I mean before I do that uh, anyway. M- Mel Selahar is gay. <laughs> who the fuck's Mel Selahar? <laughs> Mer Selahar. Mer Selahar. He said he was gay. Yes, of course. Yeah, okay, he's yeah. gay. Um, one of 
Uh, Maya's aunt is gay. Certainly. Who? One of Maya's aunts is gay. Which one? Remember when he, the when the oh, goblin yeah, king yeah. came? Oh yeah, she's gay and she has a wife. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, yeah. She's like a pirate. <laughs> but the, that those were remember like that was in Goblin Land where things are more permissive in the mystical Orient. But in this land, like it was a huge disgrace to Marcellahar that he was gay, and even uh, even Maya said that. You know, he knows that, like, someone, the arch prelate or someone, teaches that it's, like, a sin, basically, to be gay. And then he said he'll think about it later, which I loved was, like, the last. Like, he's spearheading women's rights, and he's going to consider whether or not it's evil to be gay. <laughs> By the way, just as a side note, I do, like, let's be, like, every podcast, we should have a segment in which we just have a witch hunt about, like, who's gay and who's not. <laughs> and we read the most suggestive lines. I, Patrick Rothfuss. All <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. Uh, regardless, I'm sorry. I agree. There are actually gay characters in here. Oh, so that's why you don't want to be a part of this world. <laughs> <laughs> no, are you kidding? I want to be part of this little like group of intellectual astrologers who are like all women and oh, don't want to be astrologers. <laughs> I think you demean their status. Oh shit! They're astronomers. Astronomers. I forgot. I'm sorry. That part got me. When it said, when he sent her the note, it said, study the stars instead of getting married. I mean, that got me too, except by the end of the book, I was thinking like, all right, his older sister, Vetero, she's like 24 and hag. it's, hag, <laughs> dried up husk. <laughs> it's this big thing that he says, you know, I'm not going to make you marry the person. My dad was going to make you marry or whatever. Do your own thing. Go, you know, study. But I mean, how long is that going to last? Two years? Like, come on. Like, she's going to be married for political reasons eventually. He's so, doing like, things differently, Brie. You, I can't believe you are a counter-revolutionary. In the context of this book, you would have tried, you would have been, it would have been Chevayon, Lord Shavar, and Brie <laughs> taking him out of his bedroom at night and trying to cut his throat or send him off to a convent Please. because he is not dignifying the position. After he'd been ordained, but since you did talk about the revolutionary aspects of this book, I wanted to ask you what you thought because I really liked this, but I want to know if you thought, you know, the book earned the <laughs> the connection it made at the end between his very positive, progressive reforms and uh, radicalism and violence when he has the final interview. Well, that's the crux of the book, right? That's where that's the most important passage of the book in which he talks to the guy who is kind of projecting into the future. This is the bomber who we know now helped blow up the, the ship that was carrying his father. Mm -hmm. He's talking with him, and as a reader, the intention we're supposed to get is that this guy's speaking some truth that mm -hmm. we're going to see played he's out. Serene. He's, he's serene. He's collected. He's about to be executed. He's about to be executed. He says, it's worth it because it put you on the throne, and I know you will do better for us, meaning the working people. And he says, like, things have changed. Things, things have, have already changed. changed. Yeah. And he knew all those good things he had done. You went to the servants' funerals. You did this and this and this. So I think it's a good question to ask in terms of violence or how much that's earned connections between those. I read it more to get back to our world. Mm -hmm. The airships, there's a talk about coal. There are labor disputes. That's what this is mm -hmm. at heart of it as well. Poor working conditions in grimy factories on the outskirts of the city producing for the city, right? There are really apparent kind of prophets here who are given... I mean, they're, they're playing a mixture of, like, Nietzsche and Marx mm -hmm. all wrapped up in one, right? Like, we are the gods ourselves. We've killed the gods. 
we can be gods, right? So there's Nietzsche. Completely. But then there was kind of that built-in criticism of that kind of philosophy, too, saying, like, well, a lot of people who say this, like, actually just want the power themselves. They want to exploit other people. Good, yeah. And, I mean, that's why I kind of liked the book as well. Uh, what I When I really was on board with it is when it did that. But then it also had, and we're getting, you know, for thinking, again, historical or something, we're getting a very top-down look here. Mm-hmm. And I was, I wanted a lot more of that below. We just got such a small hint of, although I like the fact that apparently there is this huge kind of, you know, quasi-communist uprising bubbling underneath the feet of all of these people that mm-hmm. were only getting, you know, these people trapped away in the palace doing all these things through the aristocracy. And I had to decide in my head, is this a nice gesture on her part that she's given a hint of this broader displeasure, malcontent that's going to come back and bite him in the ass? Like this revolutionary spirit. Or is it just she hasn't given this much time? And I ultimately concluded that she just, it's kind of an afterthought, and it's there. Because her main intent is to show that he's a reformer, and therefore the whatever feelings of the working class don't matter. So anyway, the airships, the coal, the factories, the bombs, the communalistic philosophies involved with also like labor, Mm -hmm. quasi-socialist thought. This is 1890, right? This is, this is... This is a steampunk book. This is okay. This is the Gilded Age in a, in a way, right? This is, I mean, the decades before the First World War. I mean, that's interesting. I guess when you say it like that, I'm actually totally convinced. But because nothing about Maya felt steampunk to me and nothing about his court itself seemed that way and that was where the majority of the book took place, it didn't read that to me. Although... When you put it that way and talk about kind of the wider stuff going on in the book, yeah, I'm persuaded. Yeah, no, I th- and, I, and I think you're right, for sure. And that's why I couldn't decide whether I thought this was nice, because she's given us 300 pages of just kind of really boilerplate fantasy. Mm-hmm. And then at the end we realize, like, no, these are all, like, the illusions of an upper class that are about to succumb to these rumblings from underneath that we've had no, we're not paying attention to, just like the characters aren't paying attention to, mm-hmm. which I thought was kind of interesting. But then by making the Maya the hero of that story, it undermined it for me. It wasn't it was less impressive. I would have loved it if she presented Maya as a kind of reforming emperor intent on changing things, but at the same time it doesn't matter because he's embodying an antiquated like imperial position and what the fuck, who cares? These people don't give a shit anyway. They want to get rid of hereditary positions regardless, no matter their intent. And that wasn't there. The, that would the, have been interesting, but that wasn't at all the book we were reading. I know, I, I know. And that's me saying, why didn't you write this book instead of right, this book? Right, right. Um, but that's for and a that, second, I thought that's what she was going to do. That wouldn't have worked with the 14-year-old reader, just to tell you. That have been like, but Maya's so nice. Well, see, this is, again, where the YA okay, thing comes yeah. in. Like, how, yeah. what are you placing into this? I mean, and but I did still, at the same time, admire her ability to kind of give both sides, right? So, at the same time as... Mayor Salahar in that letter says, here's the prophet, he's a false prophet like all these other people. But at the same time, in a nice aside... I loved his letter. It was full of asides, and I felt like it was an actual letter by what he's supposed to be, which like is an intelligent, thoughtful, devoted person of like a certain belief system. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And this is... So the part I liked was on 340-341. Right after he gets done saying, I figured out who the killers were, these are them... Here's the reasons they're doing it. We need to get them. And then he says, 
Serenity, we do need, we do think that some investigation should be made of the Amal Airship Company for some of the grievances desperately need to be addressed. That's it. Mm-hmm. So just an aside saying, here's this radical <laughs> labor movement, and they're kind of right. They're being treated like shit. Right. Um, but also, they're the ones who did it. I kind of like that. And so, anyway. So I, I love that these are your thoughts about the book. <laughs> I, I think they're actually really idiosyncratic. But You think? Uh, I mean, kind of. Not that that's not there, but... I know. But now that I think about it, it, it is four pages when she's fleshing out <laughs> I mean, yeah, like, a 19th century labor movement. is Maya's coming of age. <laughs> it, it is. <laughs> that it is, is the Goblin Emperor. It, it's true. This is the Goblin Emperor. What about the language? How did you feel about... It's very stylized. Not the language, isn't, but I mean the language in which they speak. It's formal. They it's use using, the thou. They use the thou. It's interesting, the thou. What do you think? It worked for me. Uh, I liked the way they spoke to each other. In general, I thought the prose was lovely and engaging. You did like it. Wow. And Yeah, no, I agree. I thought it was... I wouldn't necessarily call it lovely. I would call it engaging. I don't know if this was you. Something about it seemed so... Again, I'm just using the same words. It was sober. It was straightforward. It wasn't trying to do anything other than give this impression. And in that, I thought it could adequately be called lovely, in a way. But I thought there was something with within the prose that um, was related to sort of Maya's moral code, which was one of kindness, so that even the way, the way that she would describe certain people, like at one moment, I remember she referenced a side character, and she said, um, uh, who had a talent for rose growing. No, and I was just like, in these little asides about characters were always very personal and really endeared me to them. And I think you're right. So I mean, so not lyrically lovely. It wasn't a lyrical. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, guess if you're you right. think it about wasn't... it in terms of name of the wind, it wasn't trying to do some of that stuff. Even though you resisted the lyrical. No, part there. so I guess I'm maybe just saying I thought, I thought sort of the the mind presented in the book, which was Maya's mind, but yes. also which touched everything else, there was a loveliness there. And maybe it was just after Name of the Wind, it, which felt so going for it yeah. and sort of heavy-handed and, you know, feel what I'm feeling. Um, something about this, I was just really taken with a lot of it. And maybe this is also about just the time of my day when I would start <laughs> reading it a lot, which was like... Uh, Nighttime, settled in, first glass of wine. <laughs> I just be like, oh, this is great. Okay, I can, I can see that. I think maybe then we felt a little bit different about it. I felt like at the same time that it was, I so much more enjoyed reading this than Name of the Wind. Almost because I, it wasn't trying to do anything. Both of those potential coups happened. It was presented with the exact same weight and gravity as if he was going to a meeting. And it just happened. There was no build-up. There was no amplification. Well, if there's amplification, it's on hair and wardrobe. Oh, God, yes, Because there exactly. was, I mean, she, I loved the real, like, femi detail, not to point out that the author's a woman, but, like, poured over the so jewels much. and I his hair and it. what type of fabrics he's like wearing. That. Oh, God, I loved it. You I did? wanted to be in all of that, yeah. I, I mean, can you picture... I, Whenever clothes are described, they I have no idea what they're talking about. Well, you don't know like the names of fabrics, right? I know the name of the wind. You it's true. <laughs> Actually, we still don't. Um, <laughs> we do. The dude man told it to him at the end of the book. 
Yeah, but remember the name of the wind is always changing, and that's part of the message. <laughs> um, no, yeah, you don't know the names of colors that aren't basic colors or fabrics, or I think any gemstones other than diamonds, so you must have been lost in those. That's true. I wanted to get to one thing because you mentioned the coup. I thought the, the first coup, I guess the second one was just an assassination attempt. I thought the coup was great. Mm. I thought plot-wise it was the climax of the book, which came early. Mm. I feel like the philosophical climax was later, but that felt like the moment where I really felt like his life was in danger. Right. And it was the only moment of the book. I thought it was great. I thought the dinner party scene preceding it really set the stage. I thought it, the dinner party scene was kind of like tense and articulate, and I did feel like it was two seasoned adults talking in front of an 18-year-old who they knew they owed a lot of deference to. Yeah. Um, so I liked the dinner party, loved the coup, and I liked it because I felt like action actually did demonstrate character in it. I learned a lot about Maya, and I learned a lot about Idra during the coup. Right, right, yeah. Those were like pivotal character moments. And it cleared, kind of halfway through the book or a little over, it kind of cleared the board. These tensions and mm. like kind of character shit that had been building, but I didn't know what was going to, you know, Shavar doesn't like him, Shivian doesn't like him. Gone. Although they Gone. should be executed, but no, <laughs> banished. I mean, he couldn't execute them and also like become the emperor that he does at the end of the book. Right. See, I think he could, and this is maybe where we differ. <laughs> this is your I'm monarchy, not... like your I monarchy know. sympathies. I feel like where he demonstrated the emperor that he is and the way that he's different <laughs> oh, oh God. <laughs> is the fact that he didn't kill Idra and his sisters. Why would he kill Idra? Idra saved his life. Well, yeah, but like Idra is always going to be a threat until he has a child to his throne. And Idra's 14, and he was raised at the court, and he has a lot more supporters than Maya. <laughs> I would have killed Idra. <laughs> Are you Thank kidding? You. Idra's head's on a stake as we speak <laughs> in Court of Bree. This is true. Your court would be a nightmare. Be <laughs> so many jewels, though. <laughs> so many jewels. Okay, maybe we can talk about the goblinness of the book. Can I frame that a different way? Yes. Uh, what did you think of the treatment of race in this book? And did you think it was meant to parallel parallel and or comment on actual racial politics? I do. I thought the little section at the end about Ferguson was a little out of place. <laughs> <laughs> I just didn't see it coming. Um, no, I felt like that was a failure. Because we should say in case the listeners Oh, we don't say anything. It. Well, we should say <laughs> the elves are completely white. They have white hair and white skin. And goblins are... Black, like they're the color of black and mixed into colors of slate and gray. Right. With orange eyes, just like black people. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's okay. I felt like that was one of the failures of the book. Not a failure because it didn't do something, but a failure because I could tell it wanted to do something with difference that I felt didn't have any resonance to me. Um, the fact that he was a goblin wasn't given anything substantial in terms of hurdles or difference or anything like that, even at the end, I felt like the big set piece that was going to lead to a climax was, and again, I go back because I, I kind of liked that nothing happened, but I thought it was the great Avar, his grandpa coming. I thought something was going to happen along Oh, along that's another that. thing that made it feel very YA to me. Like in the end, he does get a father figure who's benevolent and sorry for everything he's done, and he's kind of like a booming King of the Feast character. Right, and right. you know that were there sequels, 
And I don't know if there are going to be, but I hope not, because something I liked about this was the kind of, okay, it's over oh, yeah. of it. Uh, but if there were going to be, you know that the great Avar would show up every now and then to give him guidance, and in the fourth book, he would go visit him in Berizan or wherever. <laughs> don't say whatever. You know where it is. <laughs> right, okay. Anyway, but so I... you thought that the fact that he was half goblin was going to come to the center of the stage. Again, this is Beyond just maybe the I have no idea what a goblin is. I've I've heard the word goblin. I've heard the word hobgoblin. Is he a hobgoblin? What's a hobgoblin? What First is a hob? First of all, a little awkward that you're saying hobgoblin because obviously hobgoblin, like mudblood, is set up to be the N-word of the book. <laughs> I never heard him say mudblood. Hobgoblin is a racial slur. I've never, and mudblood's I, from Harry Potter. Come on. Oh. It's like the one thing you don't say. You don't say hobgoblin? In Harry Potter. Remember Hobgoblin, the only person who would call him a Hobgoblin was Setheris when he was drunk and angry, and mm. how that, and how in his horrible moments he would think, of course I'm not fit for this. I'm Do just goblins like, fit into like general Well, I guess we can talk about this, worlds. because I'm, this is why I'm a little confused you're even talking about what's a goblin. A lot of these words, like kind of, or like indicator, uh, elf, vampire, goblin, witch... I feel like fantasy books use these, and they're partially drawing on what you know, but the, each story will build its own mythology. So if you ask me what I think a goblin is, I would say it's a three-foot-tall creature that hides your socks. Right. But as soon as I entered the book, I understood, like, oh, goblin's another race. I understood yeah. that as well, but there was no point at which we were given any like way in which to understand that a hobbin... Or a goblin encompassed these yeah, traits or characters. Like, oh, <laughs> I, know. I know. So, I mean, was did he encounter prejudice at any point? So, I mean, okay, this... If there was those black and white, very literal black and white issues that are supposed to parallel the way in which, like, race is an issue now, we still... I could, I could leave this book and not know what the hierarchy is. My thoughts, I think, because I have read fantasy books, are a little different than yours when it comes to the race issue. Um, I was really surprised when I found out goblins were actually black, like the color black. Mm -hmm. um, lots of times in fantasy books, darkness is used to suggest fae. Like a fairy? <laughs> yeah, but the fae is actually a race and there are a lot of different types of fae. For instance, when we were being named the wind, I still wake up sometimes and I can't believe this is real. Didn't know Bast was a demon. I knew he was a demon the when the when the guy told me he was <laughs> when, a demon. when he got cloven hooves. Right. But everyone else knew in the beginning because he was described as short and quote dark. Oh god. Not meaning black, but meaning all right, it basically it's code in fantasy stuff. Small, dark, and ugly is often used to describe people who are fairies. Yes. And what they're describing is people who have dark hair and pale skin and look vaguely Italian. Scary. No, not scary because they're usually the protagonists of the story, but mm -hmm. they always face a lot of prejudice because they're not fair and high-minded. And basically what I'm saying is I think a lot of the racial stuff in the fantasy genre, I guess, is going to like a European tradition of racial inequality that does not apply to like American racial politics. Right. Basically, because the book referenced a lot that Maya had dark hair, which is unusual, and that he was dark in general, I thought it was uh, recalling that tradition, mm -hmm. and I thought that's what it meant. Of course. Yeah, yeah I, agree. Um, I agree. So when I realized that they were actually talking about like uh, blackness and whiteness, then all of a sudden I felt like this is 
so markedly different from the way things are treated in most, mm. especially medieval fantasy novels like this. I see. That okay. it made me feel like there's definitely, there has to be like some kind of racial connection she wants us to make between blackness and whiteness here. However, I guess... Do you feel like it was, it was doing something new with the trope of otherness in fantasy by not making it a traditional European swarthy versus northern European, but by doing something maybe more contemporary to like an American audience. I thought it was doing something new until we actually met the Great Avar and learned some about Badahais or whatever. About Badahais. In which I felt like it was actually drawing on a different and possibly more entrenched tradition in fantasy, which is just East versus West. And the mysticism of the East... The opulence, the you know, the the great of art comes up in this like gorgeous red and gold gilded thing. So then that made me reconsider some of my assumptions. But I do think Maya could still read as like an interesting portrayal of a biracial character in the way that he feels like he can't fit in with either culture. Mm. He's not a goblin. He doesn't remember like he can't even read goblin that came, signals. That came through somewhere. But he's not part of the elvish community, so. I don't know. It basically, it just made me think a lot about race and fantasy in general. That's nice. I think you liked this book. I think my pick was a success. I enjoyed this a lot. It was easily my favorite book we've read so far. And it felt like a real, it felt like a real palate cleanser to me Mm -hmm. after some of the others. That's a good way to put it. I agree. That might be a good, maybe one question to wrap things up. Was there any magic in this? There was magic. I I thought of one... Kala killed a man with magic. Was that how it was? Yeah. The Tethamar, when he tried to kill him. Mm-hmm. He was shaking. He was a little kind of... Yeah, yeah, He yeah. shot something at him, magic-wise? It was basically like a lightning bolt. That was the only time, right? Yeah. Magic had a really limited role. Did you like that or not? I only noticed it in as much to think of what you thought of it, to be honest. I'm, I feel like I'm kind of used to some fantasy being more just medieval dynastic shit mm. in which like magic exists but is on the periphery and you feel like the author even though they're writing a fantasy book doesn't want to like sully themselves with actual <laughs> descriptions of magic right right uh so i kind of just fit into that for me yeah um but i did wonder you know i did have the thought beside my ya thought of take out the kind of useless goblin elf stuff in that one scene of magic and this is just historical fiction I mean, along those lines, too, I think the main conceit of the book was historical, too. Not to get too into the weeds, but the unexpected, huge disaster creating succession crises is a part of English history. If you know much about the white ship disaster, that's sometime in the 12th century, I think, the, a ship sunk off the English Channel, the heir to the throne was on it, and a lot of other aristocracy. And Super not original, then. Right? I mean, that yeah. was it. Like, the airship... The ship saying mm-hmm. it's like a big thing, huge civil war afterwards. These ideas come too from bad they didn't have a Maya to keep them on this side of civil war, you know. Well, there was for a while a goblin rule, <laughs> people were very confused. So, anyway, so maybe a good way to end would be thinking about it in terms of a new segment, a cringe factor. The cringe factor, indeed. Uh, I think let's talk about how cringeworthy is reading this book in public. <sighs> this is the combination of the title the cover, and the reputation, if it has one. Okay, so let's start with the last. It doesn't have a reputation, I believe no, not, right? correct. Right. That's Sarah, Sarah Manette's trying to get away from that. 
her name is just <laughs> mud <laughs> in the world. Can you describe the cover? What's on this? I liked the cover. The cover I'm is... I'm still terrified to read it in public. Uh, about just the eyes and pointed ears of an elf wearing a crown that looks like a golden city palace. With a nice little airship coming off the side to signify our world. I like the cover too, but in terms of cringe factor, I think it's fairly high. Oh, just because of the name. The the name is huge. I mean, the Goblin Emperor. You're not (laughs) fooling anyone. Right. And his pointed ears. I mean, it's so weird because combination of things, the book itself isn't really cringeworthy. No, I don't think at all. The title is about as cringeworthy as it can get. (laughs) The Goblin Emperor. That being said, I really like the title. Oh, yeah, yeah. But if we're talking about in public, it's not to the point where I'm, like, putting electrical tape over it and writing something else. (laughs) Right. But, you know. What about our... Not taking this to the bar. (laughs) Actually, you are, probably. (laughs) Actually, I did. A lot. (laughs) Exactly. Okay, so cringeworthy factor, it's... Out of uh, one to five. you, You take this out in public. You read it on a bus. Uh, from one to five. I mean, obviously you do. You don't care. Well, I do. Yeah, Sometimes. but I'm saying like I'm also aware of things. Like right. I don't care, but I know if someone's looking at me and I'm reading the Goblin Emperor. Right. Uh, I get three. Three? Yeah. I read this on a bus with it between my. Lap. Actually, two. Sorry, I just remembered the covers of some of the books I've <laughs> oh read before That's in what public, I'm and two. The fact that I'm willing to open this in public mm-hmm. while still trying to hide its cover says something. Mm-hmm. I don't think I would have opened The Name of the Wind. In public. Mm-hmm. I mean, also just because I feel like that's like a book that everyone's I mean, like... that one has a reputation, too. Right, right. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, you should open The Name of the Wind. You'll make some friends. Magical virgins. <laughs> They're all magical virgins. <laughs> they were virgins in this, too, right? He did say explicitly once, like, even... He was so scared when the <laughs> opera singer prostitute was like, hey, you want me to go back to your So room? is that also a reason why it might be why I remember Catherine had to make it clear at the end that she was... I mean, that... Part seemed you could have thrown that away. Where the opera singer came in to say, "I'm sorry, I propositioned you. I'm a virgin too. Don't worry." I yeah, that the whole end made me think YA, and I really hadn't thought that through eighty percent of the book. Right, right. It just hadn't been there. I guess we should wrap up soon so I can get to this. I liked the book a lot. The last page, the last paragraph, whatever, was so bad. It felt like an entirely different book. How about? He's sitting there, and they've finally okayed this bridge-building thing, which I really liked as for that to be a big movement in the book Mm -hmm. that he okays the building of this important bridge for trade. I was like, yes, you know, Goblin Emperor. And then someone on his cabinet says, well, what should we name it in this very, like, hey, let's end the book. What should we (laughs) name it? And they say, like, let's name it, like, the Varen Chibel or something, which is... Fucking bizarre, because he spent the whole book saying, I hate my dad, I'm going to rename myself, his name is Edra Hasevar, and all of this. So, like, it didn't even ring true to me that one of his advisors would say, let's name it after your dad. And then he said, no, let's name it the, oh, I can't even say it, let's name it the Wisdom Bridge. Yeah. I think that fits, I think you're, okay, I know we're trying to finish this, but it gets back to, I think you're discounting the main point of the book. You're just counting that... You've already said there's no point of the book. No, no, no. If there is one, I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Or like the main thrust of the book, the transformation. She is setting up, showing us not just like, here's how an unexpected and unprepared child becomes 
a competent emperor. Mm -hmm. She's saying, here's how an unexpected and unprepared child becomes the progressive, reforming, savior, redemptive emperor, right? I agree that's the message of the book. I don't need it so obviously hammered into me that he names the bridge the Wisdom Bridge. I get that you've gone from, (laughs) you know, young, bullied boy to actual, like, wise young man. But I don't think that's out of place, or I don't think it's any more egregiously maudlin or over the head than some of the other things. The passage with the bomber. I disagree. I think it is. The clemency, the niceness to his traitors. No, I disagree. The the wisdom bridge is the worst fucking name for a bridge I've ever heard. I know. I've ever heard. But he did it to honor those dead dead people. Remember, he did it not to call it wisdom, but to call it the name of the airship, which was wisdom. Okay, yeah. And which would help which would honor the, the not the aristocracy, but the crew that had died. No, thought Maya, and then quite suddenly he knew that would be right. It is an excellent thought, he said, but we would prefer that it be called the Wisdom Bridge, in memory of all those who died, and in hope. So the first one. No, 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 no. That sucked. And then the last line was such a shitty throwaway, and yeah. she had had so many good ones, and then it just says... You know, someone says, oh, you're going to be called Edra Hasavar the bridge builder. And he says, we would like that, he said finally. We would like that very much. I like that. I mean, it's just the book is so, and maybe I read this much more la-di-da, clinical, it's not doing much. No, and you, it's not that it's not a beautiful line. It's that we it's would like that. We Well, it's not, but like, we. I'm saying my complaint isn't like, make that lovelier. My complaint is that sounds like a line that you like make up in a second. Right. Oh, like we'd like that. We'd like that very much. It's cliche. I know, but it, maybe just again after Name of the Wind, it's a nice corrective. He he had like a three-page metaphor going at the end to like, and I how many how many metaphors did she use throughout the book? I mean, there wasn't that kind of discursive tangential reverie, which I liked so much. And it, I thought it was, again, of a piece to end it with something just so like, yeah, here we go. The book's over. There was no need to. I mean, kind of I just I disagree because I think that the book had shown intelligence and actual thinking, and I think that if in very least we would like that very much. I'm saying like you don't need. I'm saying she doesn't need to have a three-page metaphor as her ending line, but she could have a two and a half page metaphor. No, she could have a. She could show some of that restraint, for instance, which this doesn't show. This right, is a right. cliche. Okay. I and she could right. just end Ultimately. on like, oh, and then he went to bed. You know? He does get sleepy a lot. He gets so sleepy, <laughs> but he always has people there. So maybe then we should finish and rate it. How many Unthalanizi courts do you give this? <laughs> I would give this book 8.5 Unthalanizi airships. <laughs> courts. How many... Is that the highest you've given? Yes. Easily, yeah. Did you? What's, I feel like you gave an eight once. No, never gave an eight. You didn't? No. You gave a, okay. No, I've been, I actually realized, I think I have a problem in that anything that I didn't hate or obsessively worship, I give a seven. That's true. So this book was, I thought, really good, made a good impression on me. There was, you know, a time in this book, the whole coup thing, I was fa- fairly obsessed, didn't want to put it mm-hmm. down. How many Unthalinates? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Maybe didn't come across. I like. I think this was my favorite book out, out of them all yet. Me as, as well. well. Yeah. I think I enjoyed this as well. I'm going to give it an 8. All right. Okay. Well, then that's our discussion. I'm going to start making oh, you fuck. go first on the ratings because I think you always take what I did and then just put it down 0.5. Right, look If at we you. go back and listen, Fan that's what's girl. happening. Yeah, right. Right? You're making me out to be the crazy one. The crazy. Oh, any book she loves. <laughs> so that's it. Thank you for listening to Genre Stop for our discussion of The Goblin Emperor. Join us next week when we will be discussing Stephen Bruss Aguiar. I say Bruce. Bruce is better. <laughs> hey, yo, what's that one about? Vampires? I hate you, I hate you, where did it go wrong? Young, young,